this is how I unwind in the in the evenings is I find like Brookings studies of, of which it upsets me that I have to use Brookings, but they do have like a lot of interesting stuff. They just come to the completely wrong conclusions about it. So I am looking into this sort of uh, post-industrial situations going on as these sort of blue-collar jobs do leave the country, how it's replaced with these, you know, professional class and also service worker jobs, yeah, I mean, and how that's affecting our economy. And this is one pretty big part of it. Yeah. Well, well, folks, we're going to get into it tonight. Uh, this is Rob. We're in the Highlands Bunker, Shadow of Rockford Tower, Behind Enemy Lines, Belly of the Beast. Uh, and we have a couple cool things planned for you. So tonight, uh, Carl and I are going to talk about some research he's been doing into... That's a very strong word. Okay, reading, 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 yes. reading, and then reading. discussing what you've read. A little bit of data stuff. I but. mean, look, it's all... I see what you're saying. Before we get into it, I want to say uh, a quick word about what I refer to as um, when something is problematic. It's sort of like something you have to deal with, but put it in its proper perspective uh, when you're looking at greater sort of arguments. Um, the, my, the pinned tweet on my Twitter account is something that um, I, I take pretty seriously and i forgot to bring the book in here because i was just going to read it but um it is one of the uh, general orders before sherman marched to the sea so uh, before he went uh through georgia you know he sort of wrote up how they were going to go off of supply lines and sort of what they were going to do so he wrote up uh special field orders 10 so there was a bunch of field orders and and this is my this is the one i think is is very interesting to read <clears throat> This is a field order number six. As for horses, mules, wagons, etc., belonging to the inhabitants, the cavalry and artillery may appropriate freely and without limit, discriminating, however, between the rich, who are usually hostile, and the poor or industrious, usually neutral or friendly. So he gave this, this order um, to basically pillage through and supply basically off... Of the plantation owners and the rich, and not only not to pillage from the working class and the poor and the slaves, but also why not to? Um, because they were they were friendly to the working class cause. This is problematic, however, because today happens to be quote Columbus Day unquote. This is like the, the obvious, obvious problematic thing because Columbus was, you know, a, a colonizer and a butcher. But we've been sort of indoctrinated to believe that, you know, he opened up the West to, I guess, white people. So it's like a, it's sort of a, it's a big thing. Uh, and so we've, we've, we're starting to, and I think rightfully so, sort of recognize this as, as Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, not only in the United States, I think, but in the Americas, really. Um, but uh, about three years ago, I read a, uh, a biography of Sherman. It was excellent. 
um, and I wish I had it at hand. I was going to bring it in here tonight, and I completely forgot. Um, but there is a long passage um, that actually reflects on the march to the sea later on in his life about his time in the South um, as a uh, as an as an army. It wasn't a general then. I think he was like a lieutenant or a major or something um, in South Georgia and Florida. And a lot of the time he spent there in the U.S. Army was finding and um, exterminating the natives in South Georgia and Florida. So this is problematic, right? Um, you have to start to decide how you're going to deal with this stuff. And the, you need to be very clear, clear thinking when you deal with it. Um, and what crosses the line, what doesn't cross the line... Uh, it's tricky. So uh, it was just something I thought of today uh, while we were uh, celebrating, I guess, whatever this day is. We're, some people are getting the day off. Yeah. That, that, I, I guess they're, they're celebrating in that way. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like it. County uh, government gets the day off. Not the, the city government didn't get the day off? I don't know about the city. I just know about the county. I guess we'll find out tomorrow because I think one of my bins, I think they come and pick up my trash bin tomorrow. So if they come, it means they weren't off. But if they don't, it means they pushed it one day. So I'll know soon. Uh, so tonight, uh, what we wanted to talk about was uh, some reading that Carl's been doing. He put something up uh, on the internet this morning, which I found very interesting. It was basically a look at three different Sort of very small, I guess, census tracts. Was census tracts, yeah. Yeah, so very, sort of very small neighborhoods in Newcastle County uh, where over time you could track um, some poverty figures and they seem to correlate to things that are very interesting that probably would require further reading. Um, but, uh, yeah, so what was, the, what was the premise? What got you interested and what did you look at uh, initially to sort of drive you into sort of going in a little further? So I've been interested in the topic of suburban poverty for a couple months now. I don't remember exactly why it was. Uh, I mean, I've lived in the suburbs for most of my life. I moved into the city of Wilmington back in 2012 and then have lived in Newark on and off, so back and forth for college and stuff. So, I, But I'm, I consider myself mostly a suburban person. And when you live in the suburbs and when people talk about the suburbs, there's this image of them as a very white, very middle-class, sheltered, very economically privileged place. And that is also was sort of my experience with it for a lot of my life. You know, my family's not rich, but well-off, and we lived around a bunch of mostly well-off people as well. Uh, but recently I was sort of going along the internet reading links and then following links. And I ended up on a article, I think it was either in City Lab or Strong Towns, one of those things that focuses on like local stuff about suburban poverty. And this struck me as really interesting because it's not something that you really hear about. People don't talk about it, but it's a huge thing. So to give some background, specifically some numbers. So I think a lot of people know about, and we talked a little bit about this in the housing episode, how the suburbs were created in America. It was a very distinct process. So there was a federal housing administration, which was uh, subsidized mortgages to 
basically all white families. There was a Federal Highway Administration, which, or Federal Highway Act, which then created the Federal Highway Administration, which subsidized transportation in and out of cities. And so this created a lot of white flight in the 1960s and 70s, especially after some of the uh, unrest during the civil rights movement. So as of, I think, the 1990s, America became a majority suburban country. And depending on how you define a suburb, because that's a bit weird because they do it by county, they do it by census tract, a bit over half, anywhere from like 52% to I think 80% of the country lives in a suburb. Um, but for the most part, this was a very, and this was not always the case, but in a lot of the cases, it was a very white, very middle-class thing. But then sort of starting in the 1990s with some of the deindustrialization that came across America, the suburbs started to get both more diverse and more poor. So from 2000 to 2012 to 16, so this is uh, Pew Research Center information, the poor population in America suburbs went from 15 million to 23 million, uh, which was the biggest increase of any type of area. So the urban areas went up by 4 million, rural areas by 2 million, suburbs by 8 million. So this has been this untalked about trend that the suburbs now contain a majority of America's poor. 52% of poor people in America live in the suburbs. So that's a majority. And yet when we talk about poverty, it's a thing that is very commonly referred to as a, especially in urban, um, and that's sort of a racial thing, but it also a, a rural phenomenon. Yeah, that's funny because it really is, you can look at it in two lenses. You can look at the urban sort of perspective and of course, you have, you know, sort of a racial aspect to it. Um, a lot of it's, that's very, f you know, uh, fraught. Yeah. But then you look at sort of a lot of the analysis, like in the last three years, has been sort of rural poor. Um, yeah, you're, some uh, people who forgot, you know, like the left just, behind Trump voter. Yeah, the left behind Trump voter. Small diner in uh, exactly, in but you, Pennsylvania. You 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 very very rarely. Um, get the perspective like in between and really that's actually where the most poor people are yeah so like if you ask someone to like talk about poverty in Delaware for example they'd probably talk a lot about Wilmington but while Wilmington does have you know a poverty issue I would say that I don't know the numbers on this but a lot of poor people in Delaware live outside um, and so what I did, so I was looking, this was actually, I was looking into something else completely different. I was looking into eviction rates because I was trying to do some research for uh, Representative, Representative District 26, which um, has the Glasgow courts, which I talked about in the Medina episode. Vote Medina. Vote Medina. Give money to Medina. Yes, we'll probably put a link in there just for... Well, yeah, full disclosure, we're, uh, we're, we're fully behind Medina. Yeah. Uh, but so I was looking into eviction rates and I found this site that had... A uh, really good map down to the census level for eviction rates, which was interesting to get in itself, but I don't have a lot of conclusions about that yet. It's mostly just looking into it. Uh, but I realized it also had a feature where you could look uh, down to the census tract level on a whole bunch of things from poverty to household income to race, a whole bunch of stuff like that, which is a surprisingly hard thing to find, like get actual census data on that and then be able to visualize it. So I got interested and sort of wanted to see what areas, because I'd been uh, looking into writing about suburban poverty anyway, and I wanted to look at what areas in Delaware 
because I, I legitimately had no idea beforehand what areas had the biggest increase in poverty from 2000, which was when the data started, to 2016. So I found three census tracts, and for those of you who know the areas well, I'll list them out real quick. So one is this area just south of Southbridge, it's off Route 9, has the suburbs of Simmons Gardens and Mayview Manor. So this is, most of the tract itself is industrial, and so it's sort of right next to the Delaware or to Wilmington Harbor, but it has a few suburbs sort of tucked into the corner. Uh, the second is on the corner of Kirkwood Highway and Limestone Road, and a, I don't have the name of the suburbs because there's like four or five in there. Uh, but that's sort of sort of close to Ellesmere, but not quite. Yeah, it's like Stanton. I, yeah, I, I think yeah, we, we would call that. St- yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah, Stanton towards it's, like uh, towards like Limestone Hills. That yeah, that it's got area. Stanton Middle School yeah. as a part of it, and uh, yeah, it's so right it's next like, to the Kirkwood Library as well. Yeah, exactly. It's right in that. It's right before you get. It's probably a butts um, like Delaware Park and like the golf course that's down there because it's, it's before you get that far. Yep. But yeah, yeah. And then the third is uh, several neighborhoods, Glasgow Courts being one of them, and Sparrow Run and a few others. That's off of uh, Pulaski Highway, Route 40, and sort of down in the Bear area. And so these are three very different areas. So uh, the first is has been for a while majority african-american it's close to a lot of industry it's very close to wilmington the one on kirkwood highway that was has been majority white for a while but i'll talk a little bit more about how that's changed and then the one down in bear that's always been really diverse and a lot of it is townhouses and there's a trailer park there as well so these are three very different areas but respectively the one on Route 9, from 2000, in 2000, it had a 12.89% poverty rate, and in 2016, it had a 28.55% poverty rate, which is an increase. So it over doubled in that time. And 2000 and 2016 had pretty similar economic circumstances. It's both um, sort of a while after since there's been a recession, uh, there's been some job recovery. And Honestly, in both cases, it's probably on the eve of a reception because there was one in 2001, and we're probably going to get one in the next few years. I was going to say the same thing. It seems like it's right on the tail end of like modest growth. Yeah. Because you know, obviously right before 9-11, and then we smashed out, and then we're sort of on the brink of another one here. So, yep, so yeah. that'll be fun, uh, and that's going to be really big for these areas. Um, so that's one, and this was a crazy one. Um, the one on Kirkwood Highway went from 6.57% to over tw- almost 20%. So that tripled its poverty rate. And that's just in 16 years. Yeah, I mean, that's the one I'm familiar with, too. I mean, it's like you said, it's historically mostly white. I went to St. Mark's High School. Oh, yeah. So I grew up with people who lived all you know all around there. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. And the last one in uh, sort of the Glasgow Course area down in Bear, that went from, let's see if I have... The numbers here. So it went from 8.56% poverty rate in 2000 to 23.68% poverty rate. So the nat- so just to give some perspective here, the national poverty rate over the last 20 years so has remained, except with um, the exception of the Great Recession, has remained relatively constant. It had a you know a bit of a drop after the 1960s because of the war on poverty, but it's remained relatively constant. So the fact that these areas are having poverty rate increases 
of 200 to 300% is insane. So, yeah, it sounded like the three went from <clears throat> like high single digits to when one was 12, but it wasn't in the teens. Yeah. To high teens, 20s, like you said, double or, or yeah, sometimes almost 30%. Tri- triple. In in three really distinct areas. So what's your what looks like your first thing? Like what is that? Like what are people being? Do you, do you guess people are being moved out further from sort of the city, uh, or or is it something? Is there new sort of exurbs that you would call them, and yeah. and, the, and that's sort of the, the next sort of the next sanctuary, um, the next stage of white flight, sort of so to speak. Like what? What, where did you go from there to kind of start to draw some conclusions out? So it's hard to know specifically with these individual suburbs because at least two out of three of them, I I mean, I've been around them, you know, I've driven, driven through them or like went shopping there or stuff like that, but I, I don't know them super well. The Glasgow courts, I've actually knocked there, so I know a little bit better, um, but sort of zooming out to a more national perspective there's sort of two ways that these things happen. One is the people, the existing residents become poorer or poor people move into these areas. So there is, a, and this is based on the basic overview. And I'll talk a little bit more about the demographics of how that's changed. Um, I think there's a mixture of population change, but also the existing residents becoming poorer. So, People don't remember that sort of that 2000 to 2006 time. People, we think of it, oh, there was great economic growth. Like there was, the economy was booming before the Great Recession. And that's technically true if you look at the stock market. But, uh, and I mean, if you look at, you know, what has driven like the Bernie Sanders campaign, that for decades there has been uh, stagnation, both in terms of job growth and income growth. So most suburbs... In from like 2000 to 2007, we're already just not seeing new jobs. They weren't, their incomes weren't going up. And so that made a lot of people susceptible to exploitation through, I mean, you saw the rise of payday loans and stuff like that. And especially the big one was uh, subprime mortgages. And a lot of people in the suburbs, uh, I think the number was 73% of subprime mortgages that were made in America were in the suburbs. And then between 2007 and 2010, 73% of the foreclosures were in these suburbs. And this has sort of coincided with a huge shift towards rental uh, of single-family houses instead of ownership. So that 2000 to 2010 especially just saw a huge decrease in average wealth for the average like suburban resident. So I think that is definitely one part of it, especially in the Route 9 corridor, which had probably the smallest level of population change but that is so that's one element and the second is actual demographic change so i want to clarify beforehand that i do not want to imply that demographic change is a bad thing uh but like when poor people do move into a community the community does become poorer i mean that's just a thing that happens it's not something that you know they're doing these individual poor people are doing the best they can they're just moving where they can live like we should not condemn them for tr- moving into a neighborhood, but we need to change our system to make sure it accommodates them better. Yeah, there's nothing. I guess the way I would put it is like there's nothing inherently defective about any type of person that makes them either poor or working class. 
um, the the pressures of the way that we do capitalism make sure that they're a disproportionate number of poor people, but that's not that has nothing. To, so the diversity just has to do with a, being a bunch of different people. And the fact is our system just rewards only one kind of person. So that it just so happens that that's how that happens. But it says nothing about the person. Mm. That's sort of the way that, yeah. that I look at it. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, <clears throat> it, I, I do harp on that idea that, you know, there's been such a wage stagnation that actually some people are just stagnant. So, you know, as that wealth gap moves they're, they they haven't moved they're still sort of in the same working class place but they're not they're further behind yeah exactly and then on top of that um you know i have i have some experience with this too not only just folks who you talk about payday loans but the biggest sort of payday loan that there ever was was getting people to refinance their house and take cash to do stuff to buy stuff because the rates were so low and that's like you know, I'm, that impacted the foreclosure thing, but it was like a it was a scam. And people think about, oh, you know, you get you get beat for five hundred bucks at the payday or two hundred bucks at the payday. You get beat for fifty grand on a house. Um, that's going to affect your whole family and everything. It's basically a scar on your fi- like, and you saw that with people who were like graduating in two thousand eight. There's basically just a long scar on their income for basically the rest of their lives. And that was the case for a lot of families' wealth after that crisis. Was it, it just? It's never going to recover. That's it. Just mathematically, it's not possible. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's the, the fact of the matter is that's what we've used to sort of incent people to you know create wealth in the country is like real estate. Yep. Uh, just houses and trying to accumulate wealth that way. Um, and you know when you're susceptible to that. You got nothing like you can get a you you know, you might be able to get away from, you know, getting beat for a thousand bucks, you know, for whatever reason at a payday loan or whatever you got yourself into. But taking money out of your house when you're talked into that, I mean, it's, it's usually a lot more money. It's tied to the only thing that you really have of any significance. And it's yeah, I mean, it, it's a disaster. It's fucked up. Yeah. And like real, it has and I'll, I'll get more into like some of the more dire consequences of some of this stuff that this is more theoretical at this point, luckily, but it's a real issue, potential issue in the future. Uh, but, and one of the things, so we talked about that is just housing wealth. And I mean, that's a huge part of any middle-class person's wealth. Like that is basically the asset that they own. And then in the recession, so that 2008 to onward period, the biggest job losses were in, your typical sort of middle income, you know, upper income jobs. And then when the recovery happened, and this has been an issue across the country, not just the suburbs, the biggest in- the biggest job gains were in extremely low income sectors. So it was temp work, it was contract work, uh, it was service work. So stuff that, you know, there's no problem with the people doing it, but it just pays lower wages. That's just a fact. And so not only was your asset taken away with you, but most people's incomes went, or not most people's, but a lot of people's incomes went down in this time. So there's less money, like flat money to make up for the loss that you had with this housing crisis. Really fun stuff. <laughs> yes, yeah, super duper. So, so, to the, so to the demographic changes, is there anything you can look at? Uh, so that, like we, we, 
that sort of covers the idea of sort of people falling behind. Yeah. Because so that's a of, change of the people who stayed there. Right. So wage wage stagnation, big one. Um, the the growth of low wage jobs from you know professional managerial class jobs. Uh, and then you know the, the the foreclosure crisis or the housing you know finance crisis of the late uh, aughts. Now, what what's the background of, of sort of the people moving in of the the demographic yeah. changes in those three areas and sort of what the what what do we know and what impact could that have? So uh, these specific areas. So the one Route Nine. So this was already a majority African American area. So it went from 57% black, 36% white, and 5% Hispanic to 63% black, 25% white, and about 10% Hispanic. So Hispanic population about doubled, black population went up by a bit, and white population went down by about a third. And so this is the white population going down is a consistent element in all this. And based on like just basic numbers, and it should be noted that... Um, a lot of these aren't going to be super specific because there's a census every 10 years, but a lot of the in-between number, and so my the 2016 numbers I used are more estimates. And they're usually pretty good estimates, but on a census level, you know, the margin of error is a bit higher than for a regular census. Um, but these all match up with things that I, like based on other information that I had, it seemed relatively accurate. So that's the area off of Route 9. Uh, the area off of Corkwood Highway had a, this is probably the most stark one, it went from 84% white um, to 51% white in 16 years. Uh, and the Hisp Hispanic population is what sort of created that change. It went from 6% of the area to 40%. So that was an area that had a huge increase in the Hispanic population. And based on my calculations, the overall population went up by about 380. And the Hispanic population went up by 1,200. So that's 900 people that, at least, that left. So that is an instance where you probably have some white flight. And now, is that, I mean, I guess my question would be, and again, since I know that area too, like, where are these white people going? Where the fuck are they going? Uh, that is the question. We, so, yeah, we don't know. There's no real, I mean, a, I guess yeah. I would say they, they, you know, if, I would guess, uh. You know, up Limestone Road to Hokesson and, and to and to Middletown. Honestly, that's probably like there's been a lot but of that's development just a guess. in those yeah. areas. So obviously, we don't have a very specific way of knowing unless we survey people, which I do not have the resources to do. But on a nationwide level, the two basic trends are better off people move to better off suburbs. So there's still plenty of like very high income, <coughs> high income suburbs out there. Uh, and a lot of them are also moving back to the cities. So as these cities gentrify, and I'll talk a little bit about, more about this later, they're forcing out residents that are living there, and that can also... It's sort of the reverse of yeah, white yeah, flight yeah, from the cities. Yeah. And so the last one was the off of Route 40. That's uh, Glasgow Down and Bear. So it went from 53% white, 35% black, and 6% Hispanic to 28% white, 42% black, and 26% Hispanic. So that's one where it just got generally less white, but overall more diverse. Black population went up. Hispanic population went up. So in all these areas, and so I don't want to uh, overgeneralize this too much because if you look at the national statistics, the majority of people who live 
in poverty in the suburbs are still white, but the suburbs are getting more diverse and they are also getting more poor. And a huge part of that is because people who can no longer live in the cities, and you're starting to see a little bit of this in Wilmington. Mike Brzezicki is doing his best to make sure it happens more, where now that industry is not as much of a thing, and we talked about this in the housing episode, real estate has a lot more free reign to just try to raise property values as much as possible. And a lot of poor and working class people are no longer able to live in cities. So Wilmington is starting to go through that process a little bit, like with the riverfront and stuff going on on Market Street, and they're trying to expand that. But especially, you know, New York City, Philadelphia, a lot of the bigger cities have already been doing that for a while. And that has driven sort of Atlanta is a huge one. Atlanta has seen a huge increase in suburban poverty. Seattle, Chicago, a lot of those have seen large increases. Uh, I think in the area off of Route 9, there's a good chance that a lot of these people who are moving in are Wilmington, who people who either left because of the violence or gentrification or a variety of other reasons. Maybe they just wanted to live in the suburbs. Whereas the other two, I think, are... And this is also based off of my limited knowledge. I think a lot of that is an increase in immigration. So uh, off of Kirkwood Highway, it went from 6% Hispanic to 40% Hispanic, which is, you know, that is a noticeable jump. And I know specifically in Glasgow courts uh, in that area, there's a pretty large immigrant population. And so a lot of these people, uh, they come and they don't have an existing safety net. They don't have existing wealth. And so they're either forced to rent or get like a mobile home, which doesn't build a lot of wealth for them, but they are in an area where they can typically get better jobs or better education. So it's a, I think a mix of people who are, were well off are leaving to move to more well off areas. There's some people leaving from the cities, I think, and general immigration, both internal American immigration and external. So there's three you have things to f- that are sort of driving it. Yeah, and you have to frame, like you said, there's like a problematic aspect to this sort of diversity question. Yeah. But like the way that, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just I, I, I lost perspective or I, you know, I, 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 I don't really understand maybe where somebody's coming from. I mean, you, you told a story about uh, knocking doors in Glasgow court um, with, I'll just call her the, your, your bird lady, bird lady, bird yeah. lady. Um, <clears throat> and again, like she voiced some sort of resentment about that. And I guess I understand it because you sort of framed it like, because she's actually like left behind. Like she's suffering too. She has real problems. Yeah. I mean, she was, She's basically the definition of someone who has been trapped by suburban poverty. Yeah. Because she, she can't move anywhere else. Right. Now, you if, if you protect uh, her home and ensure she has health care, you know, and sort of put those things in place, then sort of the manufactured resentment in the fact that, oh, there's new working class people here who are trying to build up their life. They just like eat different food, or mm-hmm. whatever, or they speak a different language, or at they home. speak a different language at home, or like you know, like that kind of stuff. Like they, you like you know, basketball, and they like baseball, like whatever. 
It's it's basically the same thing, but the but <clears throat> you know the condi- the material conditions of people who have already been there. When they see like, oh, my material conditions are the same as these people who are just starting out. Like, I have a resentment that's sort of yeah. like a manufactured fake resentment. I mean, it's it's demoralizing if you're stuck in place when you're told that the economy's doing great, the American dream is everybody builds wealth all the time, and you're stuck making the same amount that you made in 2000. Like, oh, and that's another thing I didn't talk about was the income. So, ha- median household income went up in the. Route 9 area and the Route, route uh, or Kirkwood Highway area by about 3,000, which was well below the overall income growth for that time. So these areas have stagnated a lot. And actually in Glasgow Courts, the um, Bear area, uh, median household income went from 48,000 to 41,000. So it collapsed. It's yeah, I mean, it's... it's and all of them are well below the average or the median household income for Delaware and the nation. And they were to start out with as well, which I think is a part of why, because the question is, why are these the specific areas that are having this increase in poverty? And a lot of the answer is because they already were more poor than your average suburb. And so when poor people had to find somewhere to live, they choose the place that's most affordable to them and the effect sort of compounds. Yeah, I... uh... Not not to go off on a too big of a tangent, but I've been thinking about this because of the well for two reasons. I've been putting this in a larger perspective because of all um, the extinction rebellion sort of climate actions lately, and because of what's going on sort of uh, around the world from a um, aggressive um, sort aggressive resentment of other people and trying to sort of exterminate them because of this sort of manufactured, sort of like, well, they're different, so, our, you know, our kingdom's just for us, sort of thing. Capitalism is doing it in these neighborhoods or in these, you know, uh, census tracts here just near us. Uh, you know, in the environmental stuff's going to do it probably in the next 50 years. I mean, people who have means, and it's less and less of those people, are going to be running to the, the, the most secure sort of fortress areas, Whatever you want to call them, Hokesson. Yeah, we well, maybe call not even Hokesson. It might just be Greenville at that point. Yeah, whatever. Like people, and and whatever they can do to sort of fortify their position, they're going to do. You know, they're going to do it for for again for environmental reasons. They're going to do it for reasons of capital. Um, they're going to do it again. They're doing it around the world. Um, they're they're doing it in northern Syria right now because the Turks have to do it. Yep. Uh, they're doing it in Kashmir right now because the Hindus have to do it. We're doing it on the southern border right now because we have to do it. They're doing it in Brazil right now in the Amazon because they have to do it, I Still guess. Still burning. Still burning, yeah. That's environment and capital and authoritarianism all rolled into one one thing. And so I get real nervous when I extrapolate it out to these ideas that People are people are shifting. They're they're running, they're running to sort of put themselves into a sort of gated sort of fortress situation, and that's untenable. You know, and they just leave everybody else to sort of like fend for themselves. Yeah, I mean that's that's scary shit. Should I be scared? I feel a little bit scared. Uh, I haven't even mentioned gotten to the fun part yet. Oh boy. Well, luckily, I'm older. I might be dead before all this happens. So, 
there are a few other things that well, we have, we have time actually um, to touch on, um, sort of in a broader sphere. So that that's the information for sort of the local stuff, and I've been doing reading into other potential effects and sort of extrapolating based on stuff that I've read. So actually, while we're on the environment stuff, I can bring up sort of the environmental aspects of this. Well, I know that's a big one because we talk about Southbridge all the time and that Route 9 corridor is yeah. sort of right in that It's a right super fun site. Right it's a giant super fun site. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, there are super fun sites there, but it is metaphorically a giant super fun yeah, site. Yeah, there's many. There's many. Uh, so that, I mean, that's just one aspect of it, but the big one is how horrible for the environment, both in terms of local stuff and climate change, the suburbs are. So there's a great map and I'll, um, a great interactive map. and I'll try to link it in the, the show notes that shows the, I believe it's the carbon emissions per capita for every zip code in the country. And I've, this is something I found, I think last year that fat, I, I just was scrolling around the country for about an hour looking at stuff. And the thing that really stands out in most areas is this bullseye pattern. So the map has green as very eco-friendly per capita. So like less carbon emissions and red is like the most carbon emissions. And so around basically every major city and even most minor cities, the city itself has very low carbon output per capita simply because a lot of people live there and they live in a pretty constrained area. A dense, dense uh, population. Yeah. Which means that each individual person has less carbon emissions per capita. But then in the suburbs around it, you have dark red areas because uh, the two main things are housing. The houses get bigger. They have more land that has to get taken care of. And the huge one is transportation. So if you live in a suburb, and it's something that actually contributes to suburban poverty, it's that if you live in a suburb, you probably have to have a car because... You can technically walk some places. Maybe there is a convenience store within walking distance of where you live. I know my wife to live back in Pike Creek. If I wanted to get to the nearest convenience store, it would have been probably a 40-plus minute walk. Yeah, I mean, I can remember I lived uh, off of Kirkwood Highway in Newark just before you get to, like, Cleveland Avenue. But we lived back in the neighborhood. So, I mean, it took me five or ten minutes just to get to Kirkwood Highway. Yeah. And then you're, you're walking another, you know, either 15 minutes into Newark or 10 minutes back up Kirkwood Highway to something. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it it's a minimum, you know, sort of like 45 minute, an hour round trip to the nearest retail yeah. thing, whatever it is. Yeah, and God forbid you want to go grocery shopping. You'd have to carry all of your groceries all the way back. So you have to get a car. Yeah. And then this is more of an issue for poor people, especially because then you have to pay car insurance. Most of the time they're going to have to lease it. And then you have to pay for gas as well. So... Not only is this the thing that you have to have in suburbs, but it's driving you more into poverty because that's several hundred bucks a month. Uh, and if you're only making, you know, a few thousand, like that's a huge, like if that, then you're, that's a huge expense. Um, but it's also, and so sometimes there's public transportation. So actually most, I found this stat interesting that like maybe 75% of uh, suburbs had some sort of transit whether that be a bus or subway or something within walking distance. But most of the time, it's very poorly funded. It doesn't come around often. That's the thing in Delaware as well. That yeah, it's, and it's funny it if exists, you think about but it. As, as somebody great. who, it, and it is, I enjoy it in the city because it's convenient. Because there is enough of it to be, 
more or less convenient. Yeah. Um, but but the the three neighborhoods that you or the three areas that you mentioned in those neighborhoods, they are still on uh, sort of major bus routes. Like obviously the Route Nine corridor, um, you can still get a bus. Um, Limestone Road and Kirkwood Highway. There's actually a pretty big bus route, number six, that goes all the way back and yep. forth on Kirkwood Highway. That's pretty reliable. I, number six is the. There's a, there's a few people listening right now who will appreciate this, but yes, the number six bus is the bus of the people. Solidarity, um, and uh, even even in Route Forty, the yeah, Newark 40 area has, pretty has a pretty decent bus. So, as yeah. you notice, even as um, sort of the poor population grows in what we would consider suburban areas, it's still as shitty as our bus system is. Places where I know at least it's available, like you can yeah. get from here to Delaware there. is actually all things considered fairly good with that sort of stuff. Uh, it's not great but it's it could be a lot worse there are areas that are way worse than we are yeah i guess i'm comparing it to like it being decently can be i mean people look new york still complains because the mta's fucked up the last time we were there uh nurse susan and i like we we had to get to penn station to catch a train so we get to the the place in guanas and in brooklyn but it's a Sunday, and it's like something. So we had to take a, we had to take the subway three stops back to get back to, into Manhattan. It was a big fucking mess, and everybody said, "Oh yeah, the MTA sucks." I'm like, "You have no idea." <laughs> Sometimes the number ten bus doesn't come. Yep. <laughs> you don't know what that means. But yeah, I know a lot of people out there are really, really jammed up with like no options, really. Exactly. And so. To basically generalize that is that more poor people are being forced into this situation where they have less transportation options, so they have to go more to poverty to get a car, and they're stuck in these places for financial reasons, and they're generating way more carbon emissions than they would be if they lived in a city. So that's a huge problem for the environment because now a lot of our carbon emissions are coming from suburbs, and until we change our land use policies, our public transportation funding, um, the way that people get around in this country which is a huge thing because it's another thing that was hugely subsidized was car transportation and if we wanted to switch towards more public transportation we'd have to have an equally large investment which i certainly don't th- see on the horizon anytime soon yeah there's actually a good book out and i wish i could remember the name maybe i'll reach out to the author because this is kind of the shit i kind of reach out but uh, about how the the car industry really um was a huge lobbyist against obviously public transportation. So a lot of this, a lot of the ideas and the plans to sort of increase our public transit infrastructure, which we could have done, uh, was basically defeated by the car lobby. Yeah. I mean, to sell cars, car companies would buy up streetcar rails and just tear them up so that people would have to buy cars. Like there's a whole genre of streetcar suburbs that a lot of them just don't have streetcars anymore because they all got bought up and torn out. So that's a huge issue. So that's just the environmental aspect of it. That's one aspect of the environmental aspect of there's there's more to talk about there. But um, one thing that's big with the demographic change is that there is, as suburbs become more diverse, a lot of the existing infrastructure or a lot of the existing institutions, I should say, are not ready for that because a lot of these suburbs were legitimately designed as white white enclaves like literally a lot of them had and if if you live in a suburb check your deed there might be a racial covenant in there like a lot of these areas had racial covenants up until the civil rights era 
Oh yeah, I mean, lot. There's a, there's famous ones. The closest the closest sort of famous one I know is in Bucks County in Pennsylvania. I think they have a Levitt town there, and all the yep. Levitt towns because the Levitt town in uh, Long Island's the same way. So it was basically meant to be a white suburban enclave. That's it. Yeah. So basically, a lot of these areas have weirdly authoritarian local institutions. So like homeowners associations are. A particularly bad example, we have a friend of, of the bunker who has been dealing with her local ho- homeowners association lately. Where is this? Uh, this is Kristen. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's... Because uh, she's Pike in Pike Creek. Creek. Yeah. yeah, I've actually... It's... I've been to her place once. Uh, it's tough. She she drove to D.C. one time. Yeah. I was with her. Um, and the really big thing, and this has been another issue where it says really broken out, but nobody's talked about it, is police. So there was a great article, I think, in the Atlantic of all places, about how uh, there was like a suburb in New York that, since the the population had been getting more black, and the police were ramping up like police violence, they were arresting more people for no reason and stuff like that. But the, probably the most famous example of this is Ferguson. Like Ferguson, like, and this was I think intentional media framing that if you look at the pictures of Ferguson during the the uprising there after Michael Brown shooting. It's all at night. It's all on the main road, and you can't see any of the action. So Ferguson, if you look at it during the day, it's a regular suburb. But what had been happening is that over time, due to these trends that I was talking about, uh, it's been getting more poor. It's been getting more African-American. And the police, and this was an issue that got brought up, but not in the context of suburbs, was that the police were still mostly white. And they were they reacted very poorly to this change in demographics, and, you know, police violence and discrimination was through the roof. And they, I think, got sued by the Department of Justice about this. Yeah, they got sued. And they, it was also the other thing that they do, which they, we've kind of talked about that in here, too, is they just treat, like, the, 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 the fees and fines as sort of like an income source. Yeah. So they just jam these people up with, like, oh, we're going to get more police to crack heads. And by the way, you're going to pay for it because we're going to give you every ticket and and fine and levy every kind of thing we can on you as just like to it's like a cyclical cyclical yeah. thing and so um actually I, I read an article from strong towns that I'll, I'll link in the description that describes exactly that how ferguson a huge part of their budget is these fines and fees and these go disproportionately to poor people then so poor people who cannot afford it are funding a huge part of ferguson's budget right now and that's a thing that that happens in a lot of places, but we just don't talk about it. Yeah, you know, I thought there was there's a great um, idea for this because it's so regressive, obviously, um, and, and there's, it's regressive for the reason that you said. But in Scandinavian, in some Scandinavian countries, I think um, Denmark and Sweden, maybe you can get municipal fines, like you get a fine for speeding or passing a bus or whatever, whatever you get. But it's but it's means tested up. Mm-hmm. So it's like a percentage of something. So if a regular person gets a fine for like some moving violation or a parking ticket or whatever it is, it's five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it is. But if a guy makes you know a million dollars a month, it's a seventy-two hundred dollars or whatever oh, wow. it is. So it's like a, <clears throat> it's pretty interesting. They have sort of like this progressive fines and fees. So they still enforce. And as you, if you've ever been to sort of northwestern Europe. They love that they love that they do love to follow the rules. So they mm. enforce sort of like, 
you know, the, they don't jaywalk. They never walk against the light. Uh, all that stuff. Not how we do it in America. No, actually, it's the first time I was in Munich. This was uh, 2005, I think. Or was it Frankfurt in 2005? It was the first time I was in Germany. So it was about 2004. <clears throat> we get a taxi to the airport in the morning. Taxi driver drives up to the front of the hotel. We all get in. He goes, uh, hey, I'm, I'm so glad uh, you just got me. I haven't even uh, had my coffee yet. So he got had gotten a cup of coffee, and he, he, he put it down into the coffee holder. And uh, we talked to him, and we realized what he meant was when he's driving, he's not going to drink that coffee. Like He's going to drive us because you don't drink. You sit oh and God. drink it. You don't drink it and drive. You just drive. Yeah. So they follow. I mean, they're really like you know sticklers about that stuff. Wow. So it's technically responsible, I guess, but yeah, I mean, this is what they did. They, they do take, um, well, I had a, I had a, f- a friend of mine who lived there for a long time and, um, that's the thing about like that you can't, you can, I don't think you can drive until you're 18 and it costs quite a bit. Like it's not just an insurance, but the initial fees to be licensed to drive okay. are like thousands of dollars. Lord. And so, you know. They sort of, you know, they, they, they t- you know, so it's, it's more of a, like, we're bestowing this privilege on you, don't fuck yeah. it up. But, I mean, they had the Autobahn, and people still want to do 150 yeah. and getting ter- total wrecks and stuff. So, you know, who knows? But, yeah, they definitely like to follow the rules. But, again, I'll have to look this up, and, and maybe we can put, put an addendum to it when I figure it out. But they do have progressive sort of fines and fees in some of these places. Yeah. Because then it's really fair because, yeah, we were in here, maybe we were talking about housing stuff or something else. And it's like, well, what about the people who can pay it? Yeah, but, but if it's just a flat fee, the people who can pay it don't care. And yeah. the people who can't are, 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 I mean, you're ruining their, you could you're destroy their life entire for nothing. Yeah. yeah, you're you're fucking up somebody's entire budget for nothing. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird, people have a, it, 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 the, the, the incentive actually is all wrong, but people fail to see sort of how that works. Yeah. And so also, sort of this is the final thing I've been looking into regarding suburban poverty is basically the financing of this whole thing and especially local suburban governments. So and I'll probably link this too. I was reading... So I've mentioned Strong Towns a few times. It's this uh, website started by... Chuck something, but he, he was an engineer that was doing infrastructure work, and he started to realize that the way that most suburbs are funded are is com- it's completely unsustainable. So it requires, you build like a cul-de-sac or something, you build like a sewer system, and there's usually a lot of funding that's there up front for building new infrastructure, but infrastructure requires steady maintenance, whether it be your sewers, your roads, anything. And the way that most suburbs are built, uh, they completely rely on property taxes to fund these maintenance and stuff like that. But the pro- it's almost impossible for property values to grow enough to maintain the level, of, to create the level of income that you need to maintain these communities. So a lot of these suburbs are taking financial time bombs that... If there's a downturn of any sort, like these places could go under really quickly. Yeah, they could have major infrastructure problems that they can't address yeah. at all. 
And so most local governments are funded by, I, I looked up Newcastle County's budget, it's mostly in, or property taxes and sewer fees. And so those are also the two things that had to be raised to, uh, to fix a few things. But so this requires basically constant growth in property values, which has been the case for most of recent history, especially in the suburbs, because people make more money, more stuff comes in, the property value goes up. But when these areas become poor or they start to experience poverty, not only do property values stop growing, but they start to go down a lot of the time. And so this is this growth in suburban poverty has only been starting or has been really been picking up like in the last decade or two. But there's a real issue that if the this compounds itself in these areas, uh, a lot of these areas could go financially insolvent. And it would be a, a death spiral basically because um, so this goes for maintenance. It also goes a huge thing is education. If you've been wondering why the Christiana School District has been spiraling out of control, a lot of it's because of a huge growth in poverty in the Christiana School District, which means that um, it has a dual effect of making the schools worse. And then the people who live in the district that want to go to better schools, they leave, which means that more the area gets even poorer. And so it spirals out of control. They have to uh, try to raise taxes, it doesn't go through, and these places fall apart. And so that's just one example of what can happen. And Christiana, like, it's it's pretty bad. Like, I went to Wilson Elementary School down in Pike Creek for elementary school, and it was fairly okay at the time, but from what I've heard, it's gotten a lot worse since then. So it becomes financially insolvent. Um, these areas get even more poor because it there's going to be white flight to a certain extent, but generally well-off flight into yeah, richer suburbs. Rich, rich that, flight. Yeah, yeah, rich flight. Uh, capital flight, basically. Capital flight, yeah, basically. Um, so then these local governments, these local neighborhoods, these schools uh, become financially really hard. And then what the two things you can do are either raise ta- like property taxes, which then makes the property even worth less because of how taxation works, or you can fill in the... F- financial gap with fines and fees. And so that's what like Ferguson has chosen to do, but that makes it even worse for the poor people living there. You know, I have a, uh, I have a good friend of mine. Who's a, he's a friend of the show. We'll call him a friend of the show who would have a lot of, um, sort of opinions. And I think would be a great resource about sort of like the, how the County is. I mean, we'll call him Pat Steyer. We'll call, we'll say his name is Pat Steyer. Okay. He's a, he's, he's a friend of the show. Uh, he's a good guy. Uh, you know, he would be very. It would, this would be a very interesting conversation. I would like to pick uh, Pat's brain about this because he has. Let's just. How, how do I want to put this? I mean, he, he's a county. He's a. We'll call him a, a political aficionado of the county of Newcastle County. Do you know what I mean? I guess you could say that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's in it. I don't mean. You know what I mean? Like he's mentally in it. Yes. He's a smart guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he would yeah. be fun to have on here. So, you know. Yeah, luckily the county. Pat, we're whole, talking to you. Yeah. Luckily, the county as a whole. I don't. I mean, I don't know about the. I mean, obviously, they had to raise taxes this past year, so it's not perfect. But I think a lot of that is just mismanagement from the previous administration. Imagine that minute um, from Strom Borden. We're God, talking yeah. to you, buddy. Gom- 
Gomborden. Gomborden. Um, yeah, come on, come on, Dom. Dom Scorden. But also, there are still suburbs that are doing fairly well in Newcastle County, like Cocas and Greenville. Uh, so they're like over the overall budget. Like I, I th- would think that the increase in those areas would balance out the de- decrease in other areas. Uh, but in certain areas where it's just a bigger issue, like the Chicago suburbs, Atlanta suburbs, Seattle suburbs, uh, county governments and township governments are going to be in some real ish- real trouble. And it's an issue that's really difficult to fix because the only way you can fix it is either completely restructuring the way that local government gets financed, which is a little bit difficult, or providing massive federal or state subsidies for these areas to just keep or just to basically level off. They're probably not even going to get much better. So like, it's a really tough situation that we've screwed ourselves into through decades of mismanagement, subsidizing the wrong things, and then leaving people out to dry. Yeah, that's about it. I mean, certainly subsidizing the wrong things. I mean, leaving people out to dry, you know they're going to do that. Yeah, that's and, and the, the subsidies are – the incentive <laughs> is to do something actually that's not good. Exactly. That drives, you know, drives people apart, drives, you know, uh, wealth and income inequality. And we just, and like you said, you leave people out to dry and then you start to uh, sort of coalesce around these sort of professional managerial class centers, Mm -hmm. gated communities. And, you know, and it's, it's for the reasons you said, it's it's something we're going to have to uh, really pay attention to. Yeah. I mean, and it's something we talked about. Was the um, the invisible hand and then the invisible foot from Russ Peterson? I started to think of it more as like invisible octopus, where it's like the market is wildly waving around, uh, just knocking things over. Things are falling apart. Like the societal outcomes from the decrease in wages, decrease in jobs, and financial crisis are so. Wide. Re- this is just one small ax- aspect of the negative effects that that had, and this could take down several, com- like a huge chunk of the American population. That's not even to mention like the political aspects of it, the overall economic aspects of it. This is just suburban poverty, and it already has. And I might sound a little bit apocalyptic this way, but like it could destroy a huge portion of America. Well, again, like you said, it's 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 not looked at, and that's where no one talk, the, I had to look at a Brookings Institute report. That's it's <laughs> don't, depressing. Don't make Carl look at the Brook. Next thing you know, he'll you be know quoting what they suggested the, as a fix to this. I had to read their whole like a hundred something page book. I don't even want to know. They were uh, talking about increasing the efficiency of poverty programs in the suburbs, not increasing funding because they said, "Oh, the the deficit's too high. We can't do that. We're giving it to the we wrong have people, to." Uh, Increase the efficiency and making sure it's getting delivered to the right place. This is their solution to this huge problem that I don't even know if they fully recognize. Well, here we go. Cato Institute Carl over here. Let's talk about the, the free market uh, solutions to these problems. Well, that was their solution. I know. Just busting your balls. God. <laughs> it was infuriating because you... You read this thing, and it sort of talks about it's. It does kind of understate it because it doesn't get into like these racial elements, these environmental elements, or local financing, which I had to. I, I couldn't find anybody that was writing about this, so now I'm writing about it. Um, and hopefully, by the time this comes out, I'll have a little bit that I can link. 
that like no one seems to pay attention and so the the solutions that people suggest are completely lukewarm and not sufficient yeah well folks we've come to an end of another uh discussion for you all uh again this is stuff it's hyper local maybe it's something you haven't thought about these are the issues we're going to continue to talk about we're going to continue to have uh people who are running for elected office in here that's coming up soon we're going to have a couple national guests in here that's coming up soon uh, we're also, and uh, Carl has seen this uh, recently. Uh, the the artwork that I've commissioned has uh, we've seen some we see some proofs, and I think you're all going to enjoy what you see. Uh, we're going to start plastering the uh, plastering the neighborhood with with wild Highlands bunker art. Um, that should be fun. That should shock a few people. There's a few. There's a few mildly shocking things in there. I think. I mean. I mean, my sensibilities are you're right. I meant, yeah. yeah, you have to put yourself into the into the, yeah, in the, the, the perspective your Mike of and your Chris Coons. Exactly, shocking. Yes. They're going to be. Sh- it's going to be all too shocking. Um, we have a uh, some information coming up about something uh, Network Delaware is doing uh, that I'm going to kind of get involved with, and we're going to have uh, someone from Network come in and talk about that. Lots of cool stuff, folks. Patreon.com. Backslash the Highlands Bunker, at Highlands Bunker, iTunes, Highlands Bunker Podcast. Get on it. Subscribe. Help us out. Uh, we're going to be doing this in perpetuity, I guess, until one of us dies. Yeah. That's probably Which, what you know, could be soon. <laughs> also, if you ha- if you know more about these areas that I talked about, and I'm going to link to the Twitter thread in the show notes, uh, or if you know more about local financing, stuff like that, and would like to... Talk me down from my cliff, um, or would like to tell me that it's even worse than I worse than I thought. Uh, I would love to hear people's feedback on this stuff because I've been do- reading about it. I've been doing some research, but I'm not by any means an expert. This is just my beginner's opinion, and I'm hoping to learn more about it. So if you happen to know more, um, maybe you'd like to come on. Maybe you'd just like to message me directly. Uh, please do so. Yeah, you can also use the uh, the show. Email, which is highlandsbunker at gmail.com. I mean, it couldn't be easier. It's right there. It's right there, highlandsbunker at gmail.com. Highlandsbunker at gmail.com. I mean, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear. I want to let you guys know that uh, I'm somebody who reuses stuff. I had a, uh, I had a bottle uh, from Sidehill Farm. They didn't even pay for this plug, but Sidehill Farm in Vermont. Uh, my wife was just up there uh, running a, uh, a cross-country race. It was, uh, unfortunately, I ran it through the dishwasher. It was the Feel the Burn habanero uh, uh, salt. Yeah. yeah. You can't see the Feel the Burn, but you can see you can see Bernard. You know, Bernard had a little health scare, but all that means is we're going to work uh, that much harder to uh, to get Bernie in. His heart is stronger now. Yes. He's he's like uh, he's like the million-dollar man or the $10 million man. Look, we're just going to get Bernie in. $25 million in quarter three, man. Exactly. Well, Lula is just a little bit closer. I mentioned it again. Uh, the whole Lava Jato car wash scheme is falling apart. That's good. Um, Portugal just elected a socialist government. That's good. Yeah. Portugal's, I mean, Portugal's pretty good. Portugal's Portugal's good. Football, not so good. That's mm. stupid Ronaldo. Don't I, I'm not going to get off on that. Sorry. <clears throat> 
But there were there, there's some victories. There's some reason to have hope. I personally don't have any hope, but there is some reason to have hope. If you're looking for it, it's out there. If that's what you're looking for. Hey, uh, Lula Livre left his best folks. Talk to you next time.